Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 17th, 2019. It's episode 2362. It's a Thursday. That means it's time for a listener call show. Hey, before we uh, we dig into what we're going to talk about today, I just want to kind of point something out. Like, my wife today looked at the date and said, holy crap. It's, you know, it's, it's past halfway point of January 2019. The first month of the new year is halfway gone, guys. You know what that means. Tick tock, tick tock. And if you've noticed a theme this week, there's really that kind of a theme in the, the music selection this week. I got a, I got a hell of a song for you at the, uh, the end of this episode. It's, uh, it, it, it's pretty dead gone inspiring. And, uh, it kind of fits that tick tock. Concept. So I'm just priming you for it a little bit and reminding you guys, TikTok, it is, it is, is marching. And you know what I say? Life is not a sliding scale. It, wor it works very simply. Uh, whatever you're not increasing in your life, life is reducing it. The inaction only results in loss. You're either proactive or you're losing. And we talk about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. And we talk about ways to make that happen in your personal life. We don't worry so much about what somebody else is doing somewhere else because somebody's always screwing something up somewhere. History teaches us that. And uh, so we focus on what we can do. So every once in a while we need that reminder, tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. So what are we going to talk about today? I got six calls lined up for you today. Question on Berkey versus reverse osmosis water filters. Of course, Jeff LeBerkey Guy Gleason is a uh, sponsor of Sochi. You might think, Berkey's the best in the world, or none but Berkey, and you're wrong if you don't have a Berkey. No, I mean, you, you make a decision based on your needs, and uh, I'll try to give you a, a basic breakdown without getting too geeked out from a chemical processes standpoint as to uh, the two different methods there of filtration and what they do and what they do not do for you. Uh, next up, we have a guy calling in uh, with an example of what happens when pattern recognition meets entrepreneurship and the way the show is affected, the way he looks at the world. I got a question on brooding chickens and quail using the same equipment, so brooding them in the same brooder but not at the same time. Uh, that's the way I read the or heard the question anyway. Uh, selecting new varieties of vegetables for the coming garden season. Uh, the guy actually is asking me to do a whole show, but I'm just going to give you a little bit of a thought on that. Next time I got a question, a gun question on boar snakes versus cleaning rods, and then getting started with aquarium fish keeping. I do mention that a lot. I've been getting a lot of questions about it, and uh, I've been reluctant to actually dig into the topic on the show because it's not really a modern survival topic. It's a it's a hobby. Um, we did talk about the entrepreneur potential for it, but. That's a pretty basic question, so I'll give you a good answer to it. And it just happens to coincide with a new video I put out earlier this week. It's about an hour-long video on planted fish tanks, and it, it seems to be doing pretty well uh, with people outside of the Survival Podcast fold. And I think that's a good thing because the more exposure I can get for the, the work that I do and, and as a presenter, the more people are going to end up cross-pollinating over into this community. And one of the Things I think that's made survival podcasts as a community and as, as a business uh, and as a podcast as a thing in general so successful is that 
This show was not built by taking a piece of the prepper market from other people. A lot of people in this uh, community that listen to the show, that are in our social media communities, that share the show with other people, that are taking actions in their life to improve their, their, their self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and liberty, are doing it because of this show. They didn't come to this show because they were doing it. One thing or another led them to research a topic or find out about something, or they saw a news story that scared them, and they started going down the rabbit hole, and they discovered the fear mongers and stuff. And in some way or another, one way or another, someone told them or they found something, and they gave us a shot. And they said, hey, hey, this just, this just makes freaking sense. Um, and so... That is strength. In fact, uh, I haven't talked about this in a long time. Probably, you know, every once in a while, kind of like a state of the podcast address or something. Um, for new people that maybe weren't with us, you would forget. We've been doing this over a decade. People that did not heard the first three or four years of the show. When I started this, I was actually really engaged in the preparedness community online, like many people were at the time. And there were forums like the Backwoods Home Forums, and there was one called Frugal Squirrels. I don't even know if these things are still around anymore or anything like that. But there were a lot of forums. People weren't really using Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. These types of things were around, uh, but they weren't using them the way they are today with groups and, and stuff like that. Most of the online discussion was being done in what we would today call old school forums, like our forum that we have, uh, you know, uh, P, uh, PHPBB forums and stuff like that. And so I was in all these forums, and I was, and I like to write, and I like to help people, and I like to learn. So I mean, I was pretty active in these forums and uh, AR15s, preparedness forum, etc. And uh, I could have very easily said, hey, guys, I got a new podcast. And I was on the other thing that people used a lot more back then were email groups, uh, like Yahoo groups. And I had you know, co-founded several groups that were on guns and sports and stuff like that and uh, hunting and what have you. And it would have been real easy to say, hey, guys, I'm doing a podcast. And I don't even know that it would have been a bad idea. right? It might have gave us more traction initially. But my thought was, well, then what I'm doing is I'm taking – from others, instead of creating and letting that process work. So I aggressively marketed the show through things like Google AdWords, and there was a, a, a social media platform called StumbleUpon at the time, which was just like a toolbar for the browser, and you clicked it, and you had subjects that you were interested in, and you would just it would randomly take you to different sites, and you could manually submit to that, but you could also buy traffic. And so there was actually a preparedness and survivalist category uh, in that. I don't even know if StumbleUpon exists anymore. So I spent some money on that. And then as the P and, and, and I did a good job of tagging the show and getting ranked on, on the search engines and getting us into iTunes, which was about the only really great distribution uh, platform for podcasts at the time. This is pre-Stitcher and other things like that. I think Blueberry was a, a distribution network at the time. I got into that. And then as people began to show up, I said, well, you guys go tell people. And that worked out, I think, a lot better in the end. And I'm sure a lot of people did tell people through those other forums and groups and stuff like that. Um, but what it did is it made it an organic growth. And it, it, there's so many people that have written me an email that's something like, a friend of mine told me about your show because I was having this specific issue. 
You know, I was trying to set up a battery bank, or I was trying to do this. They weren't really into preparedness. They had a thing they wanted to do. And those people, when they come into the community, they become really enamored with what we're doing because it's different. And so I think that anything I use to get kind of out in front of people uh, will be useful. I'm also trying to make a commitment this year to do more guest appearances on other people's podcasts. Uh, Peter uh, uh, Peter Mance Rader, um, who uh, who does the the Man Behind the Wall podcast, uh, I did a show with him last uh, month and toward the end of the year, and I've already gone a second time and appeared on his show. I'll be on on the show he'll be releasing tomorrow talking about agorism, and, and I think I need to kind of renew that effort. I don't know how I ended up in this uh, this tie right here, but this is this is the kind of things that I think I need to be doing going forward for a couple of reasons. One, to continue you know, building the audience. It, it's easy to get too comfortable when you don't have to worry about paying your bills. Um, I think my, my job is to grow this audience, to bring new people to us, because, because we're a community, because we're a community, When we bring more people in, and there's plenty of people just listen, right? They don't get in, in any of the any of the subcommunities, Zello or Facebook or the forum or whatever, the blog, what have you. Uh, but you know, of a certain number you bring in to get to listen, uh, some of those people will then find one of these subcommunities, or they become a regular submitter to the show, or they become a regular caller to the show. And so much of what we have is because of you guys that do that. And we have no idea, you know, who the next person that becomes part of this community is going to be a Sean Mills or a Stephen Harris, right? We, we don't know. And what I mean by that is not even necessarily getting the recognition, but helping that many people. I, I don't get on Zello as much anymore, so I don't know if there's a gal that was, they called her Cedar on the Zello channel. She never listened to an episode of the show, as far as I know, ever. Uh, but she was, I think she was a vet or a veterinary technician or something like that. But she helped hundreds and hundreds of people on the Zello channel. Because one of the planks out there of all these different communities pulled her in. And so I see it not just as a, as a, you know, something a good entrepreneur would do, but part of my responsibility is to keep this thing growing so that we keep gaining the power of having lots of people helping us out. So that's maybe a mini state of the podcast address there. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into it. I got the first question up today from a caller on Berkey versus remote osmosis water filters. Um, and uh, we'll go ahead and take that call. Now, remember, if you want to make a call like this, the phone number is easy to remember. It's the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. And before I take this call, let me remind you real quick, um, you, if you want to get on the air as a caller, call now. Now, you're not going to get on today. It's a pre-recorded show. Call now. Um, I have very little in the uh, in the hopper. Existing calls. If, if you call this week and you follow the rules, you're going to 99% get on the air Friday next week. I need stuff. Give me new stuff. Give me new ideas. But follow the rules. Make your point. Or ask your question in one sentence, two maximum. Then give me the details. It'll go so much better. You'll be a lot like, more likely to get through the uh, screening process. And again, if you call now, the, the, the info motion is call now. Wait, there's more. You'll get on the air Friday. You'll get on the air twice. What have you? Uh, call on in, guys, and let's uh, let's take this call. See if we can help this fellow out, and uh, hopefully his his question will help y'all out. Hey, Jack. I know you're a Berkey fan. I'm just curious. Uh, 
Berkey versus reverse osmosis, you know, pros and cons, your take. Thanks. All right, so let, let's start out without talking about the filters and the purification process itself and just talk about the result because that's what most people in the end care the most about, what goes in the glass that you then drink. The best and, and, and most direct way to answer this is that reverse osmosis takes everything out of the water. Uh, and you're like 99, 99.9999% but, but basically, when you, when you drink reverse osmosis water, you're drinking water that is H2O and nothing else. And that, on the surface, sounds really good and like, isn't that the goal? With a, with a system like Berkey, and there's other systems like Berkey, it's not the only one in the world or anything, it's not proprietary technology, um, when you're using a system like that, you're taking everything that is potentially harmful out of the water, and you're leaving behind minerals. So from a, from a straight standpoint, if we're not worried okay, uh, about fluoride in the water, and then we're going to get to that in a second, Uh, if we're not worried about fluoride in our water, either because we don't care or because it's not there in the first place, um, and if we are concerned about minerals, then we're better off with a product like a Berkey. So I have highly mineralized water, a bit too much, honestly, and some things for pipes and whatnot uh, that comes out of my well. There's no, there is no fluoride in my well, I promise you that. Um, so... What I have as a, as a direct concern, then, is there could be some sort of a contaminant that could get into my well. By filtering the water that I drink, I, I prevent myself from having that, that worry or risk. And uh, what the government recommends, you have your well water tested every three years. Okay, well, what happens if I test it today and it becomes contaminated next week, and then I drink it for three years before I test it again? You see what I'm saying? Like that's that's why I, one of the main reasons, like I just feel the need uh, to, to filter with my Berkey. Now, when I lived in Arkansas, I lived on top of a mountain, and my water was coming from 600 feet underground in one of the most pristine aquifers on planet Earth, and I owned a Berkey. Did I filter that water? No. And I'll tell you why I didn't. There was literally no risk that there would be anything in that well. Additionally, when I lived in Arkansas, we ran the podcast uh, business out of an office, and that office was on grid water. So it just made sense to take the Berkey to the office and use it to filter the office's water. All right, so it, with, with, there, there's very few places that I would say that it doesn't make sense to filter your water, but if you're in something like I was there, and I, if I had not yet owned a Berkey, I probably wouldn't have bought one for that purpose. I might have bought one in case, you know, the grid goes down, that type of scenario, but I wouldn't have bought it for my daily use. So the thing about a Berkey, though, is we have to clean it, we have to take care of it, we have to fill, we have to put water into it, take water out of it, you know, that type of thing. So you have to do something. You install an RO system, and it's, it's very easy in a little bit, you'll ever have to do it, but day to day you don't do anything. You turn the water on, it comes out, it's, it's, it's clean. Um, however, I feel, and the pe people will differ me with this, but I feel if, if your primary hydration source is water, and I kind of feel like it should be, and you're constantly drinking demineralized water, I don't think you're just not getting minerals into your body. I feel like uh, if you do that long enough, you can actually begin to extract some from it. So I, 
you know, you can always take a good vitamin and mineral supplement, probably not worry about it. But I think that like humans are designed to get some of our necessary minerals from water. That's why water everywhere that's clean to drink that humans drank for you know millennia until uh, society created civilization and started dumping shit in water and screwing it up. That's what we were made to drink. So I think that when we drink water with minerals in it. We are more living the way that we should from, you know, kind of a primal standpoint. And I, I'm a favor of that. That said, I do not like that our government puts fluoride in our water. And I'm not going to get deep into it, but I'm going to tell you that the fluoride they put in our water isn't even like the fluoride they put in your toothpaste. It is a waste product. Most of it comes from China. Uh, it is a waste product of industrial processes. It is labeled deadly poison. And if you got a hold of a bag of it and you dumped it in a stream and the, the federal government had proof that you did it, you would go to federal prison for violation of various laws uh, under environmental protection. <laughs> and they put it in the water you drink. Now, I'm not going to say it's going to kill you or anything. I'm just, what I told you is fact. Okay, I just gave you 100% fact. And... The, the the amount that's in tap water isn't going to kill anybody, or we'd have a lot of dead people already. So I'm not I'm not freaking out about it. I'm just saying I don't like it, and I prefer not to be there. The problem for you, if you're using a Berkey with the intent of removing fluoride, is fluoride in of itself is not bad. It's how much. That's that's the issue, and and is it constant and all the time? Because uh, fluoride is a mineral. It's what it is. So if you have a filter that doesn't remove minerals, and fluoride's a mineral, you guessed it, it doesn't remove it. Now, Berkey, understanding this and being good about educating their customers, makes a second set of filters. So in your Berkey, you have your top tank, and your black elements go vertically up. If you want to remove fluoride, you buy a second set of filters. They screw onto the bottom So if you're holding the top tank and you're going down in the reservoir, they actually hang down and they sit in the reservoir. So now your water goes through the Berkey black filter and then through the mineral filters. And that removes the fluoride. When I lived in Arlington and we were on grid water there that was fluoridated, I used it with the second set of filters. Now that we live here, I don't. And then you make that conscious effort to make sure you're taking a good mineral supplement Uh, or you're, you're, you can even add minerals to your water, right? There's products to do that with, which I think is makes a lot of sense. I wasn't that I wasn't that concerned about it as I am now. I hadn't thought about it as much, so I didn't do that at the time. But I think it makes sense from a health standpoint to make sure that you, you're, you're doing that. So if you are in a municipal situation where you are concerned with the removal of fluoride, um, then your reverse osmosis system may be a more convenient option for you. It doesn't take up any space, right? And it doesn't require you to do anything. And, and then for, you know, we're going to talk about aquarium keeping today. For some people, reverse osmosis water is perfect for them uh, for aquarium keeping, especially people that actually want to mineralize to a specific amount of dissolved solids. So that's a total different thing altogether. That's the, that's the big difference. You, you got to do some more work with the Berkey, but it leaves the minerals in, and your cost per gallon is lower across the lifetime of the system. A reverse osmosis, you have less, less that you have to do, but it extracts minerals. If you extract minerals with your Berkey using a second set of filters, you're, it's not the same process, but you're kind of in the same place with the quality of your water. 
And so the other thing then would be reverse osmosis systems cost a hell of a lot more money to get started with. And they can break. Like, there's really nothing to break in a Berkey. I, I have had one filter broken, and that was during, during a move, and we didn't really take good care of it, so it kind of separated. But, I mean, it's nothing. You, you just order another filter, and you're done. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no moving parts. There's nothing on it that's not user serviceable. And even though it does take up some space, it looks really good. So that's how you should make your decision, RO versus Berkey, or RO versus any type of filter system that works the way something like a Berkey does. Next up, let's talk about pattern recognition, entrepreneurship, and why this guy hates me. Jack, between you and Nicole Sauce, you broke my brain with all of your entrepreneurial this and side hustle that. Marketing over here, I can't look at anything like a normal person ever again. A couple of months ago, I was putting together a hose reel at work. Realized they used too much Teflon tape. Before I even realized what I was doing, I had done the math in my head and realized, oh, before about a thousand units, they're wasting about $10 in excess material. Nicole Saul sends me a video and I look at it and I'm like, there's no summary. Like, I have no idea what this dude's talking about. Like, you know, he's going on and on and on. I have no idea what he's talking about. Then there's no lead up to a call to action. So even if I knew what the dude was talking about, I don't even know what he wants me to do. Like, I can't even watch normal television anymore. The commercials come on and I tear their marketing apart. Between all of this, even when I'm done with my current contract, I'm never going to be able to get a normal job ever again because I'm going to have to go out and do my own thing. Jack, I hate you. I hate you so much. I have been happy to be a lot of weird things in my life, a jerk and an asshole, and now I guess I'm happy to be hated. I wanted to talk about this a little bit, because this is a thing. Um, and it, it, it comes back to pattern recognition, though. And it can happen in so many walks of life, where you're able to deconstruct things almost instantaneously because now you know the pattern. Or you're able to see the flaw in a formula because you are so aware of the pattern of the proper formula. Uh, now, with commercials, you especially commercials, I want to say something about this. It, it was about, I think, 20-ish years ago where kind of a, an unholy, unofficial alliance of all the, the, the giant uh, advertising and marketing firms, Madison Avenue types, uh, seemed to come apart. And I don't know if they met together to figure this out or uh, intercompany inter memorandums went around or they just started paying attention to what each other was doing and saying, hey, we're all going to have a race to the bottom. But for at least 20 years, marketing from the standpoint of like television commercials has been at the sixth grade level. There, there, it, it's been about that long since there's been kind of an intelligent, intellectual commercial. There was a few stragglers that held on, you know, if you go back 10 years. Uh, but if you go back before that, commercials had a, a certain, uh, at least you would expect that one out of five had some kind of a smartness to it, you know, uh, a, a cleverness to it, something that even if you weren't going to buy the product, you're like, oh, that was entertaining or that was cool or that was funny. I mean, commercials today are horrible. And the pattern recognition in the pharmaceutical world just, my God, 
So what you do is you name your drug that sounds similar to something like trust or care or something. So the name of the drug imparts in of itself that you can trust it or that it works, right? You call it something like Entresto because you know you can trust it, right? And then you get like a cheap, uh, stupid bubblegum uh, song from uh, the 70s or 80s, a pop song. And then you, you, you rewrite it. Oh, 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 Tesla, right? And then you, you, you show a bunch of happy, stupid people bouncing around living life, including people that, you know, like need oxygen. And you show them basically, with my new oxygen machine, I can do anything I want. I can care. I can climb a mountain. If you're on oxygen, you're not climbing mountains and you're not having this energy. It's just stupid. And then once, and then people get mad when you start pointing it out because they don't see it and they don't want to see it. Does it sound like anything else? How about politics? When you, you, when you, I mean, if you if you have this ability and you've started to spread it across and you've made your, you know, the concept of being a Renaissance man is is being able to know a lot about a, a little about a lot of things, to be able to talk at least a little bit about a lot of things, to be able to do a little bit in a lot of areas. And so if you kind of take the Renaissance man approach to pattern recognition uh, and you start, once you have it for here, you have it over there and you have it over there. So if, if you have any idea about that, you could probably, very, very close to being right, sit there and look. In 2020, well, we have Orange Man, of course, Orange Man bad, <laughs> all right, against whomever the Democratic candidate is, without even knowing who the Democratic candidate is now, Okay. You should be able to pretend you're either one of them, and I don't mean impersonate them or you know use their mannerisms or their cadence. I mean formulate if you were their if you were writing for them what they're going to say in response to any question. You already know what they're going to say, and you get twenty percent of the people that vote. And I put out a thing today on Facebook, it's a picture of a shark, and it, it, it was it was basically that. Voting is the expectation that the next row of teeth will change the nature of the shark. So if you don't know about sharks, sharks, sharks have these teeth that are like rows and rows and rows of teeth. And as, as they wear out teeth, basically teeth just fall out and the next row pops up. And, and that's a perfect analog for politicians. But yet you still have about 20% of the people that are like, I don't know who I'm going to vote for. You already know what they're going to say. You already know what both parties claim they stand for. You already know that both parties will sell you out, but you can't figure out which one side of the false dichotomy you're behind this year. And so you recognize that pattern, and you see the whole thing is pointless. And so there is a danger here. It is kind of the blue pill, red pill thing from Matrix, right? Once you take, Once you take that pill... And it's, it's not like the liberal left with their woke bullshit, where, you know, all of a sudden, I'm aware of all this. It's not an awareness. It's a rec it's the ability to recognize. I've seen this before. I've heard this formula before. You know? When somebody starts trying to sell you on network marketing and how you can become wealthy with it, you go, oh, gee, that's the Disney formula. First, they're going to tell me how my life is miserable and I work so hard and I'll never get what I want and they've created a villain and so on and so on. Right? I mean, it, 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 you, you can understand the pattern 
before, and that's why people get frustrated when you get into this mode, because when they start talking, like, here's what you're going to say next. And when they get really pissed off is when they realize, well, that is what you're going to, that is what they're going to say next. That you actually, it's, it's not that they weren't going to say it and you just interrupted them. They're like, they're actually pissed because you didn't know what they were going to say. And when it comes to entrepreneurship, that's what happens. And that's why people have gotten frustrated with me. I want to tell you about my idea. You know, they send me an email and I'll, I'll explain it all to you, but can you sign a non-disclosure? It's like, stop it. I don't want to hear your idea. Go do something and show it to me. Because ideas, it's not only that ideas are worthless without execution. It's that I don't need another idea. There, there's nothing for me in another idea. A hard, a hard part of being an entrepreneur today once you become successful with it, is to have less ideas so that you can focus on executing the things that you're actually supposed to be doing instead of running over here and doing this and over there and doing that and over here and doing this. There's opportunities everywhere. But, you know, they, they said a man can only serve one master. And it takes so much commitment and so much effort to be successful Unless you build kind of a walk-away business where you've got employees and a manager and, and you, can, you can sit down and have a quarterly briefing as, as the primary investor or owner, and otherwise that business runs itself, you can't run two businesses. And even if you pull it off where they both stay afloat, you will make less money in those two if you are the person actually doing it than you would in either one of them if you dedicated yourself to them. And that's just a reality. And, and so there's a danger of that, too. Now, the other danger is if you get too far ahead of yourself in thought before you, you, you get the actions up and, and people will start saying things like they're unemployable. I'm like, well, do you have any money? Well, no. Okay. Do you have a successful business? No. Oh, you're highly employable. You're highly employable until you work that side hustle or figure out, finagle something to be able to get cash flow running out of something And, and what makes a person unemployable is not the ability to be financially independent, but the act of being financially independent. And, and then you do become unemployable. And I explained it to my wife this way one time. She said, you know, when we, when we, uh, we moved back here uh, it, it, from Arkansas, she had quit her job and when we went up there working for a doctor. And she'd been an LPN for over 20 years at that point. And as soon as they heard she was back in the area, they started trying to get her to come back to work. And I said, you know, if you did go, you bumped your head or something and decided because, you know, she liked certain aspects about it, like taking care of kids and stuff like that. And that's not a problem anymore, grandkids, right? Um, we didn't have that at the time. And, you know, looking for something to do. And uh, I said, you, how long do you think you would be there knowing that you do not need the paycheck? That you just don't need it. How long do you think you would be there before you were like, I'm not taking this shit anymore and walked out. She thought about it. She goes, probably about half a day. It is financial independence that makes somebody unemployable. Because they're not willing to deal with somebody else defining the rules for them. So be careful that as you graduate through this, that you bring action along with thought process. But yeah, you're eating the pill. And once you eat the pill, it's over. Every commercial, every every problem, you can see a solution to it. And you realize that this is not as complicated as people have made it out to be. But that's your opportunity. That really is your opportunity. I'll leave it there. Let's take another one. This one, I'm brooding quails and chickens.
Jack, this is James in Tennessee. Can you brood at separate times quail and chicken in the same brooder? Details are I'm starting a pasture poultry side hustle, and I also do quail as well. And I use the brooder I have right now for quail and just add on brooding, add on bedding after, you know, when I need to. And I was wondering, can I do chicken in the same brooder, or do I need to go ahead and clean out all the bedding and all that stuff so there diseases, pathogens that would go back and forth between the species. Thanks for all the help. Well, the answer is yes. You, you can definitely do it, uh, but there are also absolutely diseases and pathogens that can affect both chickens and quail. There's probably some that, can, that affect one and not the other, but there's definitely some that, that are, are pretty much any bird uh, can get them. Uh, I, it's not so much in of itself what my concern is here. You said, you know, do I have to change the bedding? Yeah. I mean, while you're brooding birds, um, you should frequently change bedding during the brooding process for that individual bird. And when you're done with that brooder, that bedding should be going like out to a compost pile or something like that. Uh, this is what I do. And I, I, I have used my brooding equipment for ducks. I've used it for chickens. I've used it for turkeys. But this is pretty much what I do. When I'm done with a, with a group in the brooder, I go, yay! Because it's my least favorite part of being a poultry parent is, is the brooder time. I hate the brooder. It's more work. And that's when it, you get them out of there, they're bulletproof. They don't die. Unless something kills them or you get some rare thing, by the time you get them out of the brooder box, they're little Mack trucks. The brooder box can be the box of death if we're not careful. So, yay, we got them out of the brooder. Uh, all of the bedding, and I usually use aspen shavings for bedding, but you can use whatever you use, goes to compost. And then I take it out. You know, I, you know if, it depends on how big a device we're talking here. Can you pick it up, move it around? How does, how does it work out? Where do you keep it? Because, uh, like, Darby Simpson broods, uh, he poured concrete walls uh, in an outbuilding because he's brooding, you know, hundreds at a time and there's a drain in the floor and you hose it out so most of us aren't going to that scale so you i take it outside i hose it out with a garden hose i let it sit in the sun and that pretty much takes care of anything at that point um when i'm getting ready to set set it up because now it's sat out you know who knows what's in it what i usually do then i take hydrogen peroxide and i spray down all the surfaces And I do the same thing with the waters and the feeders. I'm not going to get all anal about it, drenching it in bleach or whatever. I just spray it down with hydrogen peroxide, and I rinse it off. And I let it dry, and then I set up for my next group. Here's a hack for hydrogen peroxide and spraying it. Um, now, some of the uses you might use hydrogen peroxide, like in organic gardening, you actually want a 50% reduction in the peroxide. So you want to do half water, half peroxide at the strength it comes you know, from a pharmacy for topical use on your skin. Peroxide, just understand, like at higher concentrations, can burn. So there is like industrial peroxide. There is peroxide that's basically used for swimming pools and stuff like that. So I'm talking about, you know, you can buy it at Eckerd Drugs, CVS Pharmacy. That's what I'm talking about. So if you go to Dollar General, they'll sell the bigger bottles of the two sizes for a buck. So a big bottle of peroxide is a dollar. I think it's a... I think it's 32 ounces. And then right on the other side of the store, they'll have some of these little plastic spray bottles, like for spraying water on your plants and stuff, little bitty ones, and they're different colors, usually blue and red and yellow. The, the little spray thingy, you can unscrew it from the spray bottle, 
stick it in the hydrogen peroxide bottle, and it, it just goes right on a hydrogen peroxide bottle. And I use that in my aquarium hobby. I use it in, in many things. But that's so that you don't have to transfer the peroxide. Now, again, if you want to use it for some things we use in a garden, and we'll do a show someday on the use. What about a show one day where we do uses for peroxide and vinegar? I could make a show out of that, no problem. Anyway, um, screw, screw it on there, and I use that for sanitizing things. And, and, and that's what I would recommend. Um, you, it sounds like this is not what you're talking about, but I just want to be clear for anybody here. I would not brood quail and chickens in the same brooder at the same time. There's too much of a size discrepancy, and very, very quickly that size discrepancy is going to get worse. Chickens uh, grow a lot more, I wouldn't say even a, relative to a quail, in three weeks. A lot more. And chickens inevitably pick on each other. And there's usually a runt that you may have to even have a little quarantine area for. It starts getting, you know, fuzz or when they start putting feathers on, pulled out of their butt or whatever. They peck at each other's eyes. And I don't know that they would particularly bully quail, but I probably think that they would. Um, I guess the exception would be bantam chickens. If you were doing banties, With quail, I don't think it would be much of a problem. Banties grow... Look, I've only ever brooded bantam cochrans. They grew really, really slow for me. And they were always gentle with each other. They're still gentle. They're like little puppy dogs, man. Little kittens. So maybe you could do that, but I probably wouldn't. But I definitely... Full-size chickens and quail, not in the same brooder ever. Uh, now, bantam chickens in my aviary with my quail, nobody... They ignored each other. The chickens congressed over here, and the quails congressed over here, and the only flaw in my whole evil plan was the chickens ate the quail's eggs. Uh, other than that, I hope that helps. Let's take another one. Uh, this one on selecting new vegetable varieties for a coming garden season. Hey, Jack. Uh, Roger McDowell here, MSB member in Central Kentucky. Uh, I really enjoyed your show last year where you talked about new vegetables that you were growing in your garden. I was wondering if you might be able to do a, a similar show again this year. I tried uh, several of those and, and really uh, enjoyed them. Uh, I'd like to try some new stuff. Uh, if you could do that again, that'd be great. Thank you. Uh, actually, that's a wake-up call for me. I was telling you guys it's going to be time to start plants soon and probably about second, third week of February for most people. Down here, uh, it's about right for us uh, about that time. Um, I don't like to get too ahead on starting plants. I don't want a plant to get to the size where it's now, it's now wishing it had more space. It's now got potential to have its growth stunted. I like to try to get things timed well. Uh, and as long as our growing season is here, our average last frost date ain't that much different than a lot of you guys further north of me. It's, it's how long we go before we get one that really makes our growth, the growing season a lot longer. Uh, but I, I really have, I got a big stack of catalogs in there. My wife keeps asking me, are you going to read these or can I throw them out? And I really hadn't gotten going through them yet. But let me tell you kind of what I look for every year. One thing I look for is what most people do, and that is something unique. Some I never grew before. Maybe it's a different color or a different form or a different shape or a different size. And I get really excited when I find something like, I've never even heard of that. Uh, you know, it's something from it's something they discovered in Peru or something. And, and, and that stuff's always worked out eh, somewhat okay for me, but never usually as good as I think it's going to. Um, the biggest thing I'm looking for is something that's going to grow, that's going to provide me food, 
It's going to do well in my climate and going to be highly pest immune. And so what actually ends up happening over time, if that's what you're doing, you grow, you, you grow less new stuff every year. Because you find stuff that you're like, okay, this works. I like it. The family likes it. It produces a lot. Bugs don't bother it. Awesome, right? Uh, so that's, that's the big thing that I look for. I wanted to tell you guys about one of my big successes uh, this last year. It really had nothing to do with seeds, and I don't think I even included it in the show that he's talking about. Uh, I'm not sure that I had even found it at the time I had done that show yet. Uh, and this, this plant might be illegal where you are to grow because it's considered potentially invasive. Um, and I, I guess it could be. And it's not illegal in a lot of places. But I tend to find when you go find a list of plants that you're not supposed to grow, uh, you usually find really great plants to grow. <laughs> but it's called water celery. And this is an Asian plant. And um, I had expected that it would die in our winters. And we have another test coming. Saturday, so tomorrow the temperature, Friday afternoon, is supposed to hit almost 70 degrees. And by Saturday morning, the temperature, uh, they keep changing the forecast, somewhere between 21 and 24 degrees. This big Arctic blast is coming down. And what I found here, where I live, just a little outside of the, the cities and the towns, if they say 21, I usually get 18. We haven't tested that yet this year. We've been down in the low 20s, but it's lived. Now, I'm heating the water with stock tank heaters during these events in my aquatic systems, and I'm sure that that's doing some stuff to help, but some of it is not even in the water. It's up in grow beds and stuff. I love this stuff. It tastes like it tastes like horseradish, not horseradish, wasabi, Without the heat is the best way I can describe it. It's also really easy to overcook, and you generally eat the stems, though I've changed my, my, my tact on that. That's what all the instructions said to do. Uh, but this water celery, man, I if it makes it through the winter here, then I have a plant that I can grow forever and do no work with. The other plant I'm pretty sure I talked about last year, but i got to mention it now because... If you want to get slips, you need to be pre-ordering them soon because they sell out. Victory, uh, Victory Seed sells the slips, um, and they're one of our partners. I don't think our MSB discount applies to them because he's getting it from a third party. These purple Japanese sweet potatoes, guys. Man, right now is a good time of year because I get to eat them. I get to eat the potatoes. I grow them all in my wicking beds, and when I want one, I just go out and dig around until I find one, and I keep pulling them out of that bed until I can't find any more, and I go to the next bed. And, man, they are the most unique sweet potato I've ever seen in my life. They're not orange. They're purple, right? The, the, the skin is purple. The skin's so thin, if you wanted to peel it, and I see no reason to, but if you wanted to peel it, you basically take a like a scrubby, and just kind of wash the skin off. It's that thin. The flesh is kind of a yellowish tan, yellowish white. And it tastes like a buttered regular potato if you bake it with a little hint of sweetness. And if you make fries out of them and you twice fry them, so you fry them till they're done, you take them out, you put them back in, you fry them a second time, uh, they get like 
If you've ever had plantains done by someone that knows how to fry plantains where they don't come out all sticky and sweet, they come out tasting like a potato, they're a lot like that. And they're fantastic. Especially if you make up a little sriracha mayo, or if you really want to do it, uh, gochujang mayo. Gochujang is a Korean chili paste. You mix a little gochujang and some mayo. And I'm not a mayo person with any kind of potato thing, but it works on that. So, And the beauty of that plant, though, is those greens are delicious. They taste like spinach. And you, you, there's pictures I've put out last year where I've got this 50-gallon tub uh, that I'm growing them in in an aquatic system, And the freaking vines are going 14 feet in two different directions. So 28 foot spread. And you go out there and cut enough to eat every day and you'd never catch up with it. So you got an all season green with a great tuber at the end of the season. Now people are going, Jack, those are carbohydrates. They do have carbohydrates. They do have less carbohydrate, the Japanese sweet potatoes, than a typical sweet potato or a typical potato. Um, they have a bit more fiber, so that is helpful. But they are somewhat of a carbohydrate crop. I don't grow 500 pounds of them and then live off of them. I eat about one of those a week. And to me, tubers are primal paleo in nature if we're eating non-genetically jacked up, BS, purified, high sugar content tubers. Um, this is a plant that, that man has cultivated and grows native and it's and wild in its habitat. It's perennial there for eons. Um, and it, it, to me, again, it's a, it's, I use it more as a green than as a tuber. But the tubers are like a byproduct and like a treat. Um, if I don't eat them all by the end of the season, there's a good chance I won't. Some of them, sometimes they just start growing up out of the ground. I have new slips. The other thing I did this year, I, I put it in my, um, in my greenhouse in one of my ebb and flow beds. Not a good idea. I'm going to have to rip that complete bed totally apart. I mean, it's just choked with roots. Uh, I wonder what kind of tubers are going to be in there. But it's made it so far in the greenhouse without dying back, even through our frosts, our heavy freezes so far. If I get, get, get that stuff through, I won't have to worry about slips or anything. I should just take cuttings. And what I need to do is get my ass out there this week before the big freeze comes and take some cuttings off it and pot them up. And, you know, I think that that's another little piece of advice, and I'm going to start taking it myself. For If you're a sweet potato person, the hell with slips. When your plants are raging and, and healthy just before it gets cold enough to kill them, take cuttings and, and have a house plant for the winter. And then you take cuttings off the house plant, put them back out, and, you know, once you get a couple slips going with sweet potato, you just keep taking cuttings, and you can make more of it than you'll ever know what to do with. So there's my little... Soliloquy on that for, for now. I'll, I'll, I'll dig through those catalogs and maybe in the next week or two I can come up with a show like he was asking about. I'd love to hear from you if you'd like to hear another show like that. Uh, also like to hear if you have any ideas for new vegetables you're going to be trying this year. Give me something to, to check out. Uh, just email me about it. Next up, got a gun question. Hey, Jack. Jacob here in Michigan. Curious what your thoughts are on, um, lost word, uh, boar snakes and other pull through cleaning devices for firearms. Thanks for all you do. So let's talk about what a boar snake is for maybe somebody that doesn't know. It might sound like something you might use like a laser to inspect or a camera to inspect the inside of a, a rifle barrel or something. No, it's a cleaning device, right? So the way a boar snake works is you got this little weight and you got a string, and that string leads up to a place where the material starts to thicken, 
And you, then you'll generally come across an area where you have basically copper bristles, very similar to uh, a boar brush. It's not the same. It's not as dense either, uh, which is one of my issues. And then it'll, it'll go past that and the material will get thicker and, and a little bit thicker and, and then just goes on. And it's, you know, a couple, four, five feet long, depending on what kind it is. Uh, and, and the theory, uh, not theory, the, the way they work is, Uh, we put some some cleaner solvent, uh, not usually solvent, usually something like a CLP or gun oil, like hops oil or, or CLP or something like that on it. And we drop that down from the chamber side to the muzzle. So we have an action open, we drop it down from the action side, and we pull it through. And as it comes through, the initial liter of material deposits some of the, 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 the cleaner oil. And then behind that comes our brush. And then behind that, we put a little bit of fresh oil. And then as it goes, so one pull, and basically we've applied a cleaner lubricant. We've brushed it and knocked off the heavy debris. And then we've provided that little light coating of oil, and we've kind of dried it out. So it's just a gentle light coat. So one, whoop, and your barrel's clean with big air quotes. If I was on video, you could see me. And you can do it a couple times if you want to and, and make it cleaner, and I would advise that you do. And some people are very old school with, I only clean with a rod, and I go back and forth, and I start out with this, and then I use a jag, and then I do this, and, and my barrel is going to be much cleaner than some guy with a boar snake. They're right. Their barrel will be cleaner than a guy with a boar snake, but probably not enough to matter unless you're shooting 1,000-yard Wimbledon cup matches or something like that. Um, so they both work. A boar snake is faster, and it's a lot more field and range expedient. If you're a guy that goes to the range and shoots a lot of ammo, especially things like .22s, right? Because now you can actually get .22 ammo again, and you you're, you go through a lot, and you want to be able to kind of give that barrel a cleaning in between shooting. They're really nice and really convenient. Since they are a, basically a rope, you know, you shovel it in a pocket. You know, so they're, they're, they're compact, they're lightweight, but in general, you need to buy one per caliber. Now, some are kind of a little, you know, like you might be able to use a, a, the same one in a, a, a 22 and a, a, a six millimeter, like a 243 or what have you, but in general, you have one per, per caliber size. So you got to buy more. If you use a cleaning rod, all you buy is a different brush, right? So, And you can buy a universal rod and cleaning kit for, you know, $30 to $50 and have everything you could ever need and ever want ever. Um, of course, you need new patches and stuff like that, but it's cheap and inexpensive. One of the real things that people talk about with, um, with boar snakes, though, is not ever damaging uh, the crown of the barrel, uh, the muzzle. And uh, so... With some guns, it's difficult to clean from the rear, and you really, when you can, you should clean from the rear, from the breech up to the muzzle. Um, there's also a, 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 a well, you, you can get something called a rod guide that basically slides into the muzzle of, of the gun, and that way, right where right where the, the 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 bore ends and comes out to the crown of the barrel is where you can get wear, and that can do things to screw with your accuracy. And, and, and it can be because the hard piece of steel, if it's a steel rod, is rubbing on another piece of steel. But even with some other materials that are soft like aluminum or brass 
or um, synthetic, they use now coated rods, they can get grit from that's left behind in the barrel from cleaning, and then it's basically like a little bit of sandpaper there. This is way, way, way over the top worried about. And, and let's talk about where it comes from. It comes from the world of military surplus rifles. And people get this military surplus rifle, and they look at it, and it looks like somebody took a friggin' round file to it sometimes. It's the, the crown of the barrel is all worn. And whenever you hear anybody talking about it, they say, we've all seen it. We've all seen it, you know. Uh, well, let's think about how frequently a military rifle has a rod inserted through it, especially if it's a training rifle, compared to a rifle that an average sportsman uses. And let's think about the people doing it. They're new soldiers that have never, you know, cleaned a weapon in their life. And you, instead of, it's not, I think people think when you go in the army, they say, well, here's your rifle, Mr. Spearco, and you keep that rifle until you get out. No. When you go into basic, you get old piece of shit M6, I don't know what, they get M4s now. But when I was a kid, M16s, you got M16s. By the time I joined the Army, I'm not that old. The A1 had gone, it's been done, and they'd gone to the A2 with the three-round burst versus fully automatic. But we used, like, Vietnam-era A1s in basic training. So I'd go, I got that issue, rifle issued to me, I think, like, the second week of basic. For seven weeks, you're constantly being screwed with by drill sergeants that no matter how clean the gun is, it's a rifle, I know, I'm a civilian now, it's a freaking gun, no matter how clean the gun is, That it's not clean. So you're constantly cleaning the shit out of it. You don't know what you're doing. I did, but most people don't. And then when I get done, you know, jacking that thing up for eight weeks and I graduate basic, I turn it in. And I go to AIT and they issue me another one that I jack with and, and have to deal with. And, and then I go to my unit and they issue me one there that I, you know, unless I'm infantry, I don't spend that much time using, frankly. Uh, maybe go to the range twice a year. Uh, but then when I go to a new unit, that rifle stays behind. That's how rifles work in the military. Well, those training rifles, a lot of times, are the ones that end up in surplus because they're the most beat up. And so if you judge what a, a cleaning rod can do to a muzzle based on some, you know, World War One or World War Two era surplus rifle, you're not really in the world of reality. And we use nothing But cleaning rods, when I was a kid, there was no such thing as a boar snake. So I wouldn't go to a boar snake to avoid any of these concerns. You know, one of the places people say this is really important is with a revolver. It's almost impossible to clean a revolver from the rear. How many rounds do you put through a revolver? How much time are you going to spend running a brush through a revolver barrel? Come on. So I think boar snakes are fine for what they are. Most of the time, I clean a gun, I clean it with a, with a rod. And just use some common sense, and I do clean from the rear when I can. Those are my thoughts. Let's take another one. This one, uh, question on fish tanks. I've, I've been surprised at how many people have been asking me about this. Um, and, and I even had people ask me to do an episode on it, and I'm like, you know, that's uh, not really... I mean, yeah, I can talk about how it fits in our lifestyle to a degree, but it's not really a modern survival topic. Um There's a lot of things that I like that don't necessarily fit on the show, but there's been enough questions. I'll answer one. Here we go. Hey, Jack. It's Alex in South Carolina. You frequently mention your love of tropical fish and hobby aquariums, both on the show and in platforms like Instagram. 
Can you speak briefly on good entry-level setups that won't break the bank or pose undue challenges on amateur users? Thanks. Okay, so the good news is that I just did a video this week. It's a little over an hour long, like an hour and a minute uh, on YouTube. And, and you know, 90% of it, if you're not a video-type person, you could just listen to the audio. Uh, in fact, maybe I should strip the audio out to an MP3 for those of you all that prefer that format. Um, but it was really about planted aquariums, which is kind of my thing right now. And I go through a lot of the stuff that I don't have to talk about on the air, because if you want to know that, you can go listen to that video. But that said, the first thing that I would ask you when you said you wanted to start out with aquariums is do you want to um, do uh, planted or, or just a you know, standard aquarium? Are you going to put live plants in it, or are you just going to start out and maybe use some synthetic plants and stuff like that? Because it matters, to a great deal, because it matters with lighting and it matters with filtration. And uh, so because if you are just going to just, I, I just want to try it out, see if I, I want to figure out how to not kill fish, and I want the tank to kind of look cool. Well, I would tell you that, you know, like the Aquion, Top Fin, stuff like that, that Walmart, Petco, PetSmart sells, They are not necessarily what I would recommend for someone who's going to do planted tanks. But if you just want to get your feet wet, you know, you can get a 10-gallon starter kit for about 30 bucks, And then you need some gravel, and you need some patience, and you need a place to put your tank. If you, uh, if you want to do planted, and I'm going to come at it from this standpoint, because I think most people are going to want to move there. And if you are, it might make sense to just think about it in the first place. I generally recommend that people do not go with a tank any smaller than 10 gallons for their first tank. I like little nano tanks. I've got two three and a half gallon bowls that look like works of art. They look like jewels. I'm very, very pleased with them so far anyway, uh, sitting just to my left right now. Uh, I got little shrimps in there. No fish are going in there in a while. They're just beautiful little things. It is a lot, the smaller you go, the more difficult it is to create stability Uh, to get a tank cycled and to get it stable, all right? Uh, and when you have a first aquarium, you're going to be you're gonna want to do a lot of stuff fast. So the biggest thing you need to get that done is patience. I set these tanks up a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, one and one like a week ago, and there will not be a fish in those little tanks. And these are being done with no filtration. It's all biological, uh, natural. Uh, there will not be a fish in them for about 90 days. And I could probably do it quicker than that, but I'm probably not going to. I've got some shrimp and some snails in them. And so the person that wants to get started generally doesn't want to wait 90 days to put a fish in a tank. And it's just easier to step up to a 10. And if you're going to go bigger than a 10, I would suggest a 20 long. Okay, a 20 long. And a 20, the reason I say a 20 long over a 20, a standard 20-gallon tank, a standard 20-gallon fish tank is very close to the same dimensions as a 10. It's just taller. And if you're going to go to a bigger tank and you're going to do plants, if you go with a larger footprint, you got more places to plant your plants. So you can get a 10-gallon standard aquarium with no stuff, just not a kit, at Walmart or Petco or whatever for between $10 and $15. And that's what I think are one of the best little first tanks. You can pick it up. You can move it. When it's full, don't think you can. It'll be over 100 pounds with, with rocks and water and all that stuff in it. Uh, but, you know, empty, easy to move. Almost anybody can find a spot for one. Then you're going to need a light. I would recommend, 
And if I'm not going to put links to this stuff in the show notes today. It's all in the video that I'll put a link to. Uh, Nycrew uh, makes a light for 10-gallon tanks uh, that's about $25. So now you got – see, this is what I'm saying. One of the things they said, don't break the bank. Understand, this is a relatively expensive hobby. So you got $15 in the tank, but now you got $25 in the light. <laughs> All right. Uh, then you're going to need a filter. Now, this is where if there's a kit on sale or something, those they call them an over-the-back filter with like a 10-gallon tank, that probably makes sense to go ahead and buy. The thing is, filter manufacturers sell the filter cheap for the same reason that printer manufacturers sell the printers for cheap. They don't make money selling filters. They make money selling filter elements. So I recommend that whatever filter you use, you end up using reusable media. So there's things called bio rings, and there's bio balls, or you can just use uh, lava rock. Aquariums, it's all about, it's a lot like aquaponics. It's really the same thing. It's a nitrite-nitrate cycle, and it's about back, beneficial bacteria breaking down toxins so that they can then be used by plants or not kill fish. So there's a lot to that, but you need a, a, a decent filtration system. I do not recommend that people start out going 100% biological. Uh, you go ahead and use some mechanical filtration to create water flow. And that's really all you need to get started, and then you'll need a substrate. A substrate is the stuff that goes on the bottom of the tank. If you're going to grow plants, I recommend you either you do what's called a dirted tank, And you can just get some good quality organic potting soil. It's much better if you find something without perlite in it, but you're going to have to screen it anyway. So you put it through a thin screen to get all the floaty stuff out of it, and you lay down a layer of dirt, and then you put you cap it with gravel. That's one way. Or you go to a company and you buy a prepared substrate. The one I like the most right now is made by a company called Carob C, and it's called EcoComplete. It's primarily composed of basalt. And it, it, it comes in the bag, it's got, it's wet. There's liquid in it that has things that speed up the cycling of your aquarium. Uh, and, and everybody I've seen use it that knows what they're doing anyway. It works really well for them. It, it, it's what I'm using in my nano tanks. It's probably, unless I have a specific application, what I will use from now on. Even if I do a dirted tank, I'm probably going to do a dirted tank and cap it with EcoComplete. Uh, I got a new tank I'm going to be doing soon, uh, that, that that's probably exactly what I'm going to do with it. Uh, and then you need plants. And then this is the thing I wanted to talk to you guys about on the air with your plants. Plants add up in cost. Don't go buy two of this, two of that, two of this, two of that. The reason I recommend a 10 or a 20 gallon, you go buy four or five different varieties of plants, maybe even more, plant one of each, and wait for them to do what's called convert. When you buy those plants, 99% of the time, unless you can find some locally that aren't, or you can find a hobbyist selling like on eBay that specifically says this is not what I'm doing, they're going to be grown in what's called an immersed condition. That means the roots are in water, but the plant is above water. They do that for a lot of reasons, but the biggest ones, number one, grows fast as hell because it can get all the CO2 it wants from the atmosphere, and it can only get so much CO2 from the water. Number two, they don't have to worry about algae at all because the plant's not underwater, right? Um, and so those are, those are the kind of the really big reasons they do that. And they can pump, and the third one is they can pump all the fertilizer they want because they don't have to worry about killing fish. It's not in a fish tank. And so you can grow so much faster. Then you get that plant, 
and you set your aquarium up and you stick it in the aquarium, it gets all sad. It looks like it melts. It literally looks like it melts. And that's kind of what's happening. And you think you've done something wrong. And then that plant will slowly start to convert to where it grows into the form that it needs to be in to grow underwater. And some of the leaves will maybe come back. A lot of leaves will fall off and new, new growth will come. And it may even look different than it did when you got it. The whole entire form of the leaf might change. And it's important that you know that. And so I think that if you were starting out, you could do a lot worse than set it up with your light and everything else and put your plants in there and just don't do diddly crap with fish. Throw some snails in there or something like that and, and go from there. You're also going to need a heater. Uh, there's plenty of options out there. You can look at reviews. Um, but the companies that I trust, I'll just give you the companies that I trust for all of these supplies right now, more than anybody else, Finex, Fluval, those two are great, especially for lighting. Um, Nicru is a lower end company, but their lights are good. If you stay within, especially the smaller, more premium lights that they make, uh, when it comes to heaters, When it comes to air pumps and things like that, uh, Ahim, which is a German company, they are fantastic. If you stick around in those areas, you're not going to find bad products. And then the last thing I'd really recommend people consider when they're doing these tanks is a sponge filter. And what a sponge filter is, is you got it's made out of a sponge, and you'll have some plastic pipes and stuff on it. You'll have an input. You plug a air pump into that. It pushes air through the pipes in that system, and the air comes out the top, out of a stack. Usually they're directional. You can change which way that comes out of there. And so it looks like it's making air. But what it's actually doing is, is it goes through there. It pulls water through those sponges. And honestly, on a tank size of like a 10-gallon, you can use nothing but a sponge filter. Even a 20-gallon, you can probably get away with just a sponge filter. For new people... I really like the idea of doing a sponge filter and some sort of a canister over the back type filter. Two is one, one is none. You're brand new to this. Your first attempts are not going to be that great. So if one of them mechanically fails, the, the cat pulls the, the, the airline off of your, your air pump. Uh, the air pump burns up. That's probably not likely to happen with a Naheem. Uh, the motor in your little uh, over-the-back filter or your little pump, if you use the canister filter, dies. The other one's still going. And right now you have one tank. So if you have a, a catastrophic failure in it, that's all you've got. And then the reason I love doing planted tanks in a small aquarium to start out in a large variety, you find out what you're good at growing. You're probably going to get deeper into this hobby. You're going to get what we call multiple tank syndrome, MTS. It's a disease. And then you're going to buy other tanks. And now... One of your biggest expenses, plants, is done. You know, you might get one new plant or two new plants on this new aquarium and put them in there and see how they do. But you can start pulling your Valisneria and your Wisteria and your Water Sprite, all just all out of a, you know, Dwarf Sagittarius. These are all plants, right? All out of that and moving them over there. And then you start deciding whether, do I want, do I like this? You know, people want to do, it's called CO2 injection. You basically pump a little CO2 in the water. And it's, it's not hugely expensive, but it's, a, it's pretty expensive overall, especially for one tank. So you get a feel for, is this something you really want to do and explore more before you invest more money in it? If you tell me the first tank you want to set up is a saltwater tank, I'm going to tell you, do a planted tank. You learn all the skill set that you need, and it costs you less money, and it's easier. 
And then you decide if you really want to do that. I don't have any interest in, in, in managing or doing salt. I love the tanks. I don't want to do it. Uh, so that's about as much time as I'm going to put in the fish tanks on the air here. Uh, I really think that video can help a lot of people. Uh, with, with starting out, go with you know a cheap tank. Again, Aquion, Top Fin, things like that. The other thing to do for you aquarium people, Petco, not smart, Petco, does a couple times a year a thing called a dollar per gallon sale. And sometimes they put restrictions and it's smaller tanks, but that basically means you can get a 10-gallon tank for $10, you can get a 20-gallon tank for $20, you can get a 29-gallon tank for $29, you can get a 40-gallon tank for $40, you got it, right? Um, find out. It's it's really hard. I don't ever get announcements for anything. You just check frequently. If you have a friend that works for Petco, ask them to let you know what's going on. Uh, if you're in a local aquarium club, a lot of times a good source of information. But uh, there's a lot of stuff to do with aquariums besides just rolling tropical fish in them. And you know, for instance, with my aquatic systems, I do lose a lot of my floating plants outdoors. I've got a little bit of them in every tank, and when spring comes. You know, a handful of water lettuce in one of my ponds, and in a month the pond's covered in it. So it helps me over winter plants and things like that. And you learn a lot about plants and ecosystems and, and aquatic systems when you do this. So that does apply, you know, from a standpoint of permaculture and agriculture and stuff like that. So anyway, uh, and we've already talked about how it can help you as an entrepreneur. So, with that, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Again, I will have a link to that video that I mentioned in the show notes today. It was in the daily email yesterday. If you're not on our email list, you're missing out on opportunities. Um, occasionally, I get wind of something on Amazon. Sometimes it's an item I've done item of the day before. Sometimes it's just something cool. I don't have time to put it out as a, as a T-SPAS item, and I'll send that in an email. Sometimes I... I give out information that you don't get any other way but being on the email list. Or you get a leg up on things by being on the email list. I send one email a day. If you want to get on my email list, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on subscribe, and then you can go and fill out a form. So just a simple form. I do not spam people. I do not share your information. I shouldn't even have to say that, but I guess I do. Uh, if you like this show and you want to support us, of course, you can go to the survivalpodcast.com and see all of our reviews, or you go to tspaz.com and you can get straight down to that level of the site. And if you start your shopping at tspaz.com when you shop online, you help us and the work that we do no matter what you eventually buy. I do have items of the day every day that I review for you guys. Uh, today, I've got a product I'm bringing back around. I haven't talked about it since about this time last year, uh, and it's probably time to talk about it again. This is my Number one book for people that want to get into fermented foods. It's called Fermented Vegetables by Christopher and Kristen Shockey. It's got great recipes in it. It makes the process really easy to do. Here's some of my favorite recipes that I've gotten out of this book. Garlic scape paste. It's freaking awesome. Fermented horseradish. You make fermented, real fermented horseradish one time, and you will never touch that white mayonnaise-looking crap again. Basil paste I, in, the, in the in the gardening season. I got more. I got basil coming out of my ears. Ba fermented basil paste. Wow. Uh, cherry bombs. Those are made with cherry tomatoes. Uh, celery mint salad. Sounds terrible. Is awesome. Fresh fennel kraut. Man, uh, I realized I grow a lot of fennel, and I didn't really know what to do with it until I found this stuff. Wow. T tomatillo salsa. They're all awesome. There's 300 reviews. 
Uh, most of them are four and five stars. Uh, people love this book because it's a great book. If you've been thinking about getting into fermented foods, I cannot recommend this book enough. It's easy to read. It's got tons of information. It's got tons of recipes. Uh, it won't set you back much money. And I guarantee you that in a couple months, if you're fermenting food for a couple months, the knowledge you gain from it and the mistakes you avoid will more than effectively pay for the book. And then I'm going to tell you something about books and authors. You would think if you gave away an author, like if you get to the point where you don't need the book anymore, you would think giving away that book is like the worst thing that you can do for an author. If you give it to somebody that really will appreciate it, it's one of the best things you can do for an author. Because authors, as we talked about with Gary yesterday, if they're successful, they write more than one book. So it, it's free marketing when you give away an author's book. Uh, so if you, if you, and I'm not saying just with this book, any book, if you, if you've worn it out and it's sitting on a shelf and it's not something that has any kind of sentimental, sentimental value to you where you want to keep it in your personal library or something like that, if it's not something you think, well, I might need as a reference book someday, if it's just going to sit there, gift it. Gift it. I'm telling you, man, it, it, it helps authors a great deal. And in this case, you're spreading prepping. You're spreading fermented foods and health. And, and I'll tell you, another show we should probably do is we should take a look at fermented foods again. There is not a traditional society in the world that doesn't have one or two staples based on fermented foods. Society has been built on fermented foods. It's not just a way to preserve food. It's a way to make food taste better. It's a way to mitigate the risk of poisoning and contamination. People have known long before they could explain why that it was good for their health. And you, wherever you go, you'll find a fermented food, and there's a reason. And so getting into that, and I've, I've talked to so many people that have, have had great results in improving digestive system problems and things like that as well, autoimmune problems, rashes, etc., It works. It's easy. It's the way society and mankind has lived for thousands of years before we got to a push-button microwave society. I really recommend you learn more about it. Again, this book is a great starting point, and you can start fermenting. I guarantee you, you have the stuff in your home. You might decide you want some more specialized equipment down the road, but to just do your first ferments, unless you have nothing in your kitchen, you probably have what you need to get started. If you have, if you have ball jars... You know, canning jars, you have what you need to get started. It's not canning. Don't confuse that if you're not familiar with it. But if you have those, you have what you need to get started. All right. With that, let's wrap the show up today. Real quick reminder, the, the member support brigade is on sale. 35 for life is the discount code, and it gives you what it sounds like. You get $35 a month for the rest of your life as long as you stay a member of the MSB or member support brigade. Use the discount. You'll more than get your money back. 35, F-O-R-L-I-F-E, that's the discount code. Uh, go to the site, sign up. And those of you that are in the military, if you want to join you know, monthly or something like that, email me still with the service discount in the subject line, TSPC service discount. Uh, but if you're going to do annual, it's a little bit less. This sale's that good. It's a little bit less than the military discount. And since it locks in for life, there's no reason to do anything else. Uh, last, last up, song of the day. Uh, the song today is Born Again Tomorrow by Bon Jovi. And Bon Jovi's a guy really not hip on a lot of his political views. But if I stop listening to every artist I don't have uh, aligned political views with, there ain't going to be many people left. Um, he's got good music. He's got okay music. This song is off the charts good. And I don't know if maybe I'm overselling a little bit because of the video. 
I always post a link to a video on YouTube for the music that I post. And when there's an official video, then I use that one. This one is the official video. Um, this song touches so many places, if you really understand what's going on with it. Uh, the, here's what happened. I was supposed to play this yesterday. And when I got the, the, the song list for this week and looked at it, I was like, Bon Jovi, let me check out. I've never heard of this song. So I, I, I watched the video. And then yesterday, when I selected the song, I got Thursday's song because in my head, that video hit me so hard, I thought I already put it on the air. And I don't usually make those kinds of mental, uh, mental mess-ups, uh, mess right? So um, it, the, the video kind of chronicles this, this girl's life from being a little girl and all the mischief little girls get into being a teenager and that level and going to school and going through graduation and uh, finding a boyfriend, becoming a wife, having a marriage, having her own kids, having her kids grow up, dealing with the same stuff with her kids, Her kids get to the point where they're, you know, going to get married, and then it looks in the video. It doesn't say exactly what, but it looks like she gets cancer, and it ends up being terminal. And I can't really tell, but I think in the video it looks like it's before her grandkids are even born. Uh, there's a scene they don't show who it is, but it's probably the husband uh, dumping an urn out at the beach where she was proposed to, and having a beer and having a flashback memory from it. Uh, this young man had ended up hiding in the closet from her parents when he was a kid. Uh, and then the next generation of kids beginning to grow up. So now you're at two, four generations because mom and daughter start, and then you end up with uh, grandma has passed away, but daughter is raising the kids. And it's uh, it's it's pretty amazing. It, it 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 it's not even that perfectly well done. It's just that perfectly uh, uh, ordered that it, I think it universally hits all of us if you if you watch it. And the concept is we screw stuff up, but all the wonderful things in our life, and you've heard me say this, we wouldn't have them if we went back and changed how we did it. And in the you know the chorus, if I was born again tomorrow, I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't I wouldn't do it any other way. But I think there's another way to look at this song. And boy, these songs this week hit the dash moment, right? Making the most of your dash. That dash they'll put between the day you were born and the day you die when they put it on a stone or in an obituary or whatever. Uh, when, when you look at it from the right perspective and you really think about the things I just said with this song, we are born again tomorrow. Every tomorrow, every time we wake up, we start a new day and we get to decide what we're going to do with our time and our effort and our talent or what we're not going to do. We're going to be apathetic and lazy and not get something done. And I'm all for resting. Uh, one of my laws of life is you are a battery, and a battery needs to recharge. But you, you know, you're only recharging so long before you're just sitting there doing nothing. And every day we wake up, no matter how bad we screwed up yesterday, no matter how bad we screwed up ten years ago, no matter what mistakes we made, there's another opportunity in front of us. And for most of us, the opportunity is almost unlimited. Some of us have made mistakes bad enough that maybe we are limited in what we can do. Maybe we did something really stupid and we, we physically injured ourselves to the point where we can't do certain things. But we can do something. Some people have mistakes, made mistakes bad enough that they're in a cage. And they could be in there for a year or a month or ten years. Who knows? But there's something they can do. No matter where you are, there's something that you can do. Till the day you can't fog a mirror anymore. 
There's something you can do with that rebirth that we experience every single day. We can't change the past. Most of us, if we really think about, about it, with some exceptions, wouldn't. What we can change is the future. That's what makes it unlimited. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. If you were born again tomorrow. Any other way